Welcome back to Attorney Time, the legal podcast for the business-minded, hosted by attorneys at the law firm Holly Troxell. Attorney Time brings legal expertise to you. In each episode, Holly Troxell's team of experienced attorneys will cover a broad range of legal topics, from intellectual property and patents to tips for startup companies. In this episode of Attorney Time, we are joined by Holly Troxell attorney Phil McKay. Phil McKay is the chair of Holly Troxell's Patent Intellectual Property and Internet Groups. Phil has prepared and prosecuted hundreds of domestic and foreign patent applications. With over 20 years of experience, he helps clients achieve strategic business objectives, authors non-infringement and validity opinions, and provides strategic technology licensing and portfolio management counseling to numerous companies throughout the technology sector. Phil has also taken part in technology licensing negotiations involving companies ranging from small startups to some of the most well-known corporations in the world. In addition, as corporate patent counsel, he has helped establish the patent program policies and procedures used by a Fortune 100 corporation to create one of the largest patent portfolios in the Silicon Valley. He is licensed to practice law in California, Washington, the District of Columbia, and before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Hi, welcome to Attorney Time. My name is Phil McKay. I'm the chair of the patent department here at Holly Troxel in Boise, Idaho. Uh, I'm continuing with the uh, podcast series directed to uh, patents. Uh, today we're going to be talking about patent inventorship, uh, or more particularly inventorship as defined under the patent law, which is a little different than uh, you might expect. Uh, before we do that, I've got to do the usual disclaimer. Uh, this presentation is for general information purposes only and does not represent any form of legal advice. The presentation is intended for individual inventors or companies that are new to the patenting process and desire an introduction to patent law concepts. Therefore, the discussion herein is a simplified high-level discussion and is not any form of legal or academic analysis. Uh, patent law issues are highly fact-dependent uh, and uh, subject to the particular circumstances involved. Therefore, the listener should seek out competent patent counsel for any specific patent questions or issues the listener may have. Okay, got that out of the way. Uh, so we're going to talk about inventorship today. Big issue. This comes up all the time. Uh, there's a couple of contexts that are pretty common, so I'm going to hit those the hardest. The first is, and this is again the overview, the, the first is you have a group of people that have worked on a particular project, and the question is who has contributed enough to actually qualify as an inventor under the patent law? That's one aspect. The other one that can get really complicated is when, uh, particularly happens with small inventors, is uh, you, you have the idea, you've spelled it out really well, and now you turn it over to maybe a machinist or a coder <coughs> or some other third-party entity and say, okay, make this happen. And is that inventorship? Does that give them inventorship rights under the patent law? And if so, uh, you know, how can I protect myself? Uh, we'll get into that as well. So let's start off with the general definition of inventorship under the patent law. An inventor is a person who conceives of the subject matter of at least one claim of the patent. Uh, two or more persons obviously can collaborate uh, and you have inventors. Actually, that's probably more common than not. Now here's the key though. There's a bunch of terms in here. As usual, any sentence in the legal world is loaded. The real important term that needs to be focused on is conceives. What does conception mean? And we'll get to that. But let's as an overview, let's talk about inventorship. Uh, back in the day when I was in physics, if, if anybody in your group, like for instance the acoustics group or some other group at, in an academic setting, and uh, 
you know, work with you, talk with you, you inevitably discussed uh, whatever paper you were writing with these people, there would be a tendency out of a, a sense of uh, uh, comradeship uh, to add them to papers that you published. Uh, because the idea being, hey, we talked about this and you really helped me see this more clearly. I'm going to put you down on my paper and we'll add you. And it's a nice thing to do. It's, uh, uh, you know, it's a congenial thing to do. It's, it's, it's the way to do it in that environment. Not so in the patent law. The patent law has specific requirements for what type of contribution has to be made in order for somebody to be an inventor. And you don't want to be either under-inclusive in listing your inventors or over-exclusive. This can actually cause you your patent to be invalidated and lose rights. So you want to be as careful as possible to make sure that the people you're listing truly are inventors as defined and as we're going to discuss herein. That said, you know, we want these people to rise to the level of inventorship, but if you, and I've seen this more times than you would expect, where you're really on the fence. Did this person contribute at the level as required by the patent law? When you get to the point where you just can't make that decision, even talking to your patent attorney, then I would say, when in doubt, add, because that's going to cause you less problems down the road. But make sure that when you add that person, they have, that you've basically forced them into some sort of situation where uh, they, their rights are very well defined as to what they can do with this patent. So what does conception mean under the patent law? In order to uh, talk about conception under the patent law, I'm going to use an older example in the mechanical space, and then I'm going to talk about a newer example uh, in, say, the software space. Um, and both will probably uh, be very helpful in enlightening you as to what really inventorship is. But before I do that, I want to talk about this one phrase where it says, at least one claim of the patent. The person conceives the subject matter of at least one claim of the patent. Okay, so we, if you go back and listen to um, parts of a patent, you'll be, have a little better understanding of the claims. But what this is, we might have three people that are inventors. And in our claim in the patent, our broadest claim might claim elements A and B. And it turns out that only... Inventor 1 was involved with claims A and B, and therefore is the only inventor that needs to be claimed because we didn't put C in there. Even though we talked about C, we didn't put it in the claims. So that's kind of straightforward and, and relatively understandable, hopefully. But the harder part is if um, we're talking about a particular device, a widget, and um, we're not claiming, for instance, a particular cog in the widget, or we're not claiming a particular color of the widget, we're claiming the widget. But in the course of formulating the widget, uh, it became clear that that cog was going to be a necessary part of the widget to function. Then everybody that was involved with both the general widget idea and that cog that is now included in the widget term, well, they're implicitly um, did conceive of the subject matter of that claim. I guess what I'm trying to say in, in summing it up is that uh, conceiving the subject matter of at least one claim of the patent doesn't mean that that person's contribution has to be explicitly set forth in the claim as a limitation if that person's contribution is implicitly part of the terminology used in the claim that person probably should be uh, an inventor. Um, okay so that said let's go back to this old example and we're going to start with the proverbial person that's in a bar, comes up with an idea, and draws it out on a napkin. 
Uh, in this case, it was a much older time frame. It was in the 1890s, and the, the napkin happened to be cloth. <laughs> so uh, this, this, person, the, this person's in a, in a pub and uh, sees actually a mechanism in the pub and says, oh, there's a better way to do that, and I know there is, and I'm going to draw it out. Now, this person is not a machinist. This person is not even uh, uh, in the industry, but sees a, well, solution draws it out uh, in blocks and very rough drawing, not a draftsperson like I said. And the next day, uh, presumably recovering from the drinks in the pub, looks at it and says, hey, you know, I may have had a few drinks, but that still looks like a pretty good idea. And runs it down to a draftsman. Gives it to the draftsman and says, make me a blueprint. And the draftsman takes a look at the napkin and has pretty good, you know, it's, it's, it's set forth in the napkin that it's enabling. It, it's somebody of skill in the art would understand what this person's, what the, the, uh, the, the, the initial person is describing. And the draftsman does the same and says, starts turning it into a blueprint. And in the course of doing that, the draftsman realizes that at one block in the original drawing, um, the, the person in the pub, the first person, has it wrong, has to add a piece, has to add, I believe it was a gear or a cog to it in order for the invention to do what it's supposed to do it really needs this cog the draftsman says well this guy just didn't realize how it works I'll add this gives him the blueprints including this added cog and then that person from the pub that first person gets a hold of these blueprints takes it to a machinist and says hey here's your here's your blueprint make me this and the machinist goes ahead and does what a machinist do and makes it okay the thing lo and behold starts making a bunch of money and of course all three of these people the guy in the bar, the draftsperson, and the machinist want to claim inventorship because they want a piece of the pie. So the court looks at this situation and says, well, the people on the two opposite ends we can deal with easily. The person in the pub that drafted this out on the, or just drew this out, I should say, on this napkin uh, clearly had a good conception of the invention and how it would work and, and understood that. And so that's an inventor. And then we're going to go to the machinist. Well, the machinist took a blueprint, and just like you would use a recipe, followed the blueprint, and lo and behold, created the invention in physical form. Said, well, that's just what machinists do. The machinist didn't add anything, didn't change anything, just followed the directions as set forth in the blueprint. So we're going to say the machinist is not an inventor. There was no contributing uh, point of novelty or, or, or a contributing piece from the machinist. Those two are easy. The hard one was the draftsman. So the, the, the overall concept clearly comes from the first inventor in the pub. And the draftsman took that. And if the draftsman had simply turned that into a blueprint, uh, probably not an inventor. But since the draftsman recognized that this piece was missing and added it, they're going to give that, they decided to give that draftsman inventorship status. So again, it, you have to contribute something more than just the basic skill you would bring to the table. You have to, you have to contribute to this invention in such a way that it makes the invention work or it adds a functionality to the invention that wouldn't have been present without the in input of this person, then that person becomes an inventor. So bringing this into, you know, perhaps the 21st century, although there's plenty of mechanical stuff that goes on these days, um, you'll have situations with larger software companies where the architects come in and they go to a whiteboard or now they're screen sharing, but they basically throw out a series of blocks and say, well, we're going to get this data input. 
we're going to process it in such a way that we get this output. And that process it in such a way might be just a series of blocks saying, yeah, we got to parse it, we got to do this, that, and the other, but very general, very high level. And this is akin to the inventor in the pub. They know where they want to go with this, and they know those of skill in the art would understand what they're saying. And so they're doing this at this high, you know, block level architectural diagram. Uh, then they turn around, and in, in many cases, the next step is each of these blocks in the architecture that's been described involves functionality, modules of functionality that will be stringed together or put together uh, in such a way to get that end result. Now in some cases this literally is just taking logic and functionality and stringing it together so that if you get input A it's processed in the manner that it's described uh, by the architecture diagram and you get the output you want. In that case, you may not be raising, rising to the level of inventorship. Nothing's been added. All you're doing is taking known blocks and fitting them together in the right way. However, if there's a block in there that the architects didn't recognize, or a block needs to be modified in order to get the results the architects want, now you're looking closer to inventorship. You're looking more like that draftsman that's adding that critical piece. Or not even critical piece, but adding that piece. So in that case, uh, you may have inventorship at the uh, functional block uh, level. And then the last piece is once we have this functionality, somebody's got to code it. And so you have the coders enter and say, okay, well, this is what we need to have happen, and this is how we're going to write the code to do this. Um, and uh, again, this could look very much like the machinist. You know, we know that this functionality requires this code and this approach, uh, not an inventor. But there is a chance that the coders in there um, have to get kind of creative with their code and, and perform some sort of uh, uh, gymnastics, you know, software gymnastics, um, that hasn't been done before. And again, that could rise to the level of inventorship. But simply coding and doing what coders do, uh, probably not inventorship. So hopefully that helps. Now, obviously, this is incredibly fact-specific, and you really need to uh, talk to your patent attorney uh, to determine, uh, make the best determination possible as to whether somebody in your project or working on your invention rises to the level of inventor. Uh, again, if you really just can't convince yourself one way or the other, probably better to add them, but make sure you have some sort of a side instrument like a, uh, basically a contract, which I'll talk about in a little bit. So hopefully that helps a little bit with that type of inventorship. And again, most of what I was talking about here well, there was some work for hire in there, but uh, let's talk a little bit more about that. It's, it's, it's hard enough to determine inventorship, and it's tricky enough when all three people are on the same team and either working for the same company or, or in direct collaboration. It gets even more complicated when, let's use the code example, um, somebody has the idea, there's your inventor, and now they go to professional coders, or they go to the machinist or they go to a third party to have this thing made, maybe even at the prototype phase. We're not really selling this thing yet, we're just seeing if it works. And uh, as you might imagine, uh, particularly in the coding area, it, it might be hard to distinguish where something unique's being done and where it's just plain old coding. Same could be true in machinery, same could be in any of these companies. There's a lot of them out there, by the way, that will take your idea and make a, you know, a real embodiment of it so you can find out if it works. 
And the problem is, is that they may change it enough that they could, under the patent law, rise to the level of being inventors. And under the patent law, without some other instrument, like a contract or an assignment, uh, an inventor is an inventor, and an inventor can do whatever they want with their invention. So if I have two inventors that have no side contract or assignment, uh, and they're both listed as inventors with the United States Patent and Trademark Office, each one of those can independently go do whatever they want with the invention without having to secure uh, the permission from the other party. So that's why we have assignments. That's why we have contracts on the side. Now, this isn't strictly patent law, but the deal is if you uh, have two parties, uh, you know, whether they be third parties or, or working together, the safest way to do this is to create a corporation and assign the patent rights to that corporation. And, and that way, um, whatever the bylaws are, the corporation controls who can do what with the patent rights. When it comes to using somebody, uh, a third party, you know, for instance, like the machinist, you're going to want to contact not a patent attorney, but a licensing attorney or a contract attorney. And you're going to put that person under a duty to assign clause that says whatever intellectual property, whatever you think you've invented here or have invented here, you, if I'm going to work with you and you're going to make this for me, you're going to assign all those rights back to me. Uh, that's a very strong stance. It would be the preferred stance. And, you know, some people to get the business and to keep their reputation clean will go ahead and sign that. Uh, it's going to be a negotiation maybe. Uh, again, this is going to be a licensing or contract attorney. But just make sure you know that if they rise to the level of inventor on a patent, even though it's your idea, you went to them to make it, but they change it enough to uh, rise to the level of inventorship under the patent law, well, first, you have to include them as inventors. Otherwise, you're not uh, uh, meeting the requirements of the patent law. And then once you include them as inventors, if you do not have an assignment or some other contract in, in place requiring them to uh, only use the rights or not use the rights and give them back to you, uh, you could actually be in a situation where they're listed as an inventor on your patent and they go off and do what they want with it without having to even tell you. So that's something uh, to be careful of. Okay, inventorship. Of all these podcasts, there's several of them where you really just don't want to get into that pool alone. You really need to contact a patent attorney and or a licensing contract attorney, this is definitely one of them. It would be, uh, it is a shame, it happens all the time, where uh, patents are filed and they get the rights and they're, they end up in litigation. And if, if you're in litigation in the patent law, it's because you're making a lot of money. Uh, and, uh, and then lo and behold, uh, inventorship was incorrect, rights get all messed up, patent gets invalidated, it's just not good. So uh, be very careful with inventorship. Contact your patent attorney for specific advice to your specific uh, circumstances. Uh, again, I'm Phil McKay uh, for Holly Troxel, and this is Attorney Time. Hope it's been useful. Hope you have a good day.